Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in our hands and open them together to the 23rd chapter of the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Now the book of Proverbs falls within a genre of literature simply called wisdom. And Proverbs does convey wisdom about life that's been passed down from one generation to another, namely from Solomon to his sons. Now last week we looked at Solomon's advice to a beloved son concerning sexual temptation. Solomon knew by experience how quickly a person can make shipwreck of their life through poor choices in this area, and he wanted his son to avoid those same mistakes. Similarly, our text today is a long warning against another form of temptation that has also shipwrecked countless lives through the course of human history, and that is drunkenness. The title of the message today is Wisdom and Alcohol, The Path to Self-Destruction. And so I'm speaking primarily to young people today, but all people in general. Young person, if your goal is to destroy your life, I know of no more well-worn path than that of drunkenness. And that's what Solomon conveys in our text, Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When will I awake? I will seek another drink. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now, one of the concepts we've been looking at this summer through the book of Proverbs is that of our walk, our path in life. That is our uh, habitual patterns of behavior over a lifetime. And I want to pick back up on that same concept today. Now, as we walk our path of life, We are limited in knowledge by our humanness. That is, we don't know how close to the end of our path we are. Now, I will say, though, that as we get older, we have a good idea that we're getting closer to the end than than when we started. Uh, As we see our peers, our same or similar age, and our friends pass away one by one. The eldest lady in our church is Mrs. Margot Alexander, and recently she had a birthday, and she turned 101 years old. So I called Miss Margot and I said, happy birthday. And she said, Pastor, I'm glad you called. By the way, she's clear as a bell. She said, I just need you to know that I'm not going to make it to 102. I said, well, Miss Margot, you sound nice strong to me, strong as I've ever heard you. And she laughed and said, no, you don't understand. She says, I won't see 102 because beginning next year, I'm going to start counting backwards. (laughs) I'm going to see how far I can get back towards zero, she said. Well, even Ms. Margot doesn't know when her path will end, and truthfully, most of us know we're not going to make it to 102. 
In fact, we don't even know as humans what's around the next bend. Isn't it great to serve a God that is never surprised? Scripture says that he knows the end from the beginning. He knew the day of our birth and he has ordained the day of our death. However, the Bible indicates that there are decisions we make along that path that determine how our path will end. And Proverbs helps us to make wise decisions along that path. This chapter that I just read describes a path that ends in pain. And Solomon wants his sons to avoid that path at all costs. The text begins with the end of the path and works its way back to the beginning. And so let's start there at the past end in verse 29. He asks a series of rhetorical questions. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has red eyes? Now, uh, it's a very effective and poetic way to describe the end of one's path, but it's of someone who's addicted to alcohol. Rhetorical questions are, are said for effect. Who has woe? A woe is a hardship. It's pain. It's emotional and physical trauma. Reminds me of what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord in his temple high and lifted up and he went down on his face and said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He had emotional trauma because of the holiness of God and his own sinfulness in comparison. And then he asked, Who has sorrow? Sorrow is the grief of regret. Who has contentions? That is in your relationships. If you want unhealthy relationships, here's the path that leads there. Who has complainings, that is, constant nagging problems? Who has wounds without cause? Well, all wounds have a cause, but a drunkard doesn't know where his wounds came from. In the time of Jesus, Judaism was dominated by a sect called the Pharisees. But there was a sect within the sect of Pharisees called the battered and bruised Pharisees. They wanted to be known as so devoted to God when they were walking down the street, if they saw a woman on the sidewalk, they closed their eyes so that they wouldn't lust and they kept walking and they kept running into things. And so they were given the nickname, the bruised and battered Pharisees. Well, a drunk person, one who's habitually drunk, wakes up in the morning with bruises and abrasions and pains that they don't remember where they came from. And then he asks, who has red eyes? That's the, the physical expressions of fatigue and the lack of rest and peace. Now, he's about to answer his own question, of course. These are rhetorical questions. But, but let that sink in for a moment. He's asking his son, do you want to ruin your life? Here's the easiest and the most well-trodden path I know. It's the path of, of drunkenness. If you want a life, son, of hardship, pain, woe, regret, unhealthy and contentious relationships, lingering problems are of all sort, by all means, follow this path. And that's the beginning of the path. But verse 30 tells us where the path ends. It begins, rather, with those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. That's the starting point of the path that leads to destruction. Now, we, we see an endless parade, don't we, of advertisements from our media, for alcohol. Uh, have you noticed something about every one of those commercials for alcohol? All the people in the commercial are beautiful, they're healthy, and they're certainly happy. And so the not-so-subtle implication is that being beautiful, healthy, and happy is somehow connected to perpetually having a drink in your hand. 
Solomon says that's not the truth. Solomon says what the Bible indicates is that habitually having to have a drink of alcohol in your hand does not lead to beauty, health, and happiness. It leads to pain, misery, and death. He says those who go down that path start by lingering long over the wine. And that's just a way of saying drinking too much. Drinking lots of alcohol and drinking it often. And then he says tasting mixed wine. Not only tasting it, those who go to taste mixed wine, that is they seek it out when they get up in the morning. They need stronger and stronger and more potent types of alcohol to have the same effect over time. And they drink mixed wine. In the ancient world, the most potent form of alcohol is what they call mixed wine. had the highest alcohol content. And so there it is, young person. If you want your path to end in pain, misery, and grief, here's the path. Linger long over wine, drink alcohol and drink it constantly, and consume stronger and stronger types. Well, the truth is, I don't know many people who ruined their life that set out with that goal in mind. But when you're young, the end of the path seems very far away, and you seem invincible to any of its hardships. And I think that's why Solomon repeats the same warnings over and over again against sexual temptation and against drunkenness. Over and over in the Proverbs we see in different ways. He warns against the two specific sins. Because he knows that his advice, his wisdom, is competing against a couple of things. One, his advice is competing against the opposite message from the world and from his son's peers and friends. Now, we have three basic enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We saw last week probably the flesh is the hardest one to overcome. Um, the Bible says to flee fornication, but resist the devil. The devil is strong and powerful. But then there's this world that is the culture influence upon our lives. And we have to resist that as well. And the culture is saying this is a good thing. More, more, more. And so Solomon knows he's competing against the world and his son's peers. But I think he also understands that he's also competing in his advice against youthful arrogance and a desire for independence. We always think the generation just behind ours is going to be the last, don't we? They're going to ruin it all. Your parents' generation thought that about you. And we think that about our children's generation. It will go on until one day it's finally true. But we all had that youthful arrogance. We think that though these warnings are for other people, they're not for us. It won't happen to me. But let's look at his warning beginning in verse 31. This is the past warnings. He lays out the picture of a drunkard as unpleasant as it is and says, don't want you to go down that path. And then he begins to make comments upon his warning. Beginning in verse 31, he says to his son, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will say perverse things, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on top of the mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When will I awake? I will seek another drink. These are a series of warnings. This is how this could turn out for you. Now, he's speaking here of sensual temptations. We saw that last week in the area of sex, that we are appealed to through the senses, what we see here, taste, touch, and smell. 
Alcohol has the same sort of effect. So he says through the eyes, do not look upon the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. He's speaking there, I think, poetically of how when they would take a, a large vat of wine and they would dip it into a smaller container and then it would pour it into the cups. And as they poured it slowly, it looked so attractive. Again, the advertising industry has figured this out. How many beer commercials are of this amber fluid that they pour in super slow motion and it starts at the bottom of the glass and feels its way up and the bubbles and dance and sparkle and it's seductive, isn't it? They knew that. That's why they do it. And I think you can compare it to the seductress we looked at last week when Solomon warned his son to stay far away from her door because he knows that temptations come most often through our senses. A seductive woman makes herself as attractive and alluring as possible. And alcohol appeals through the senses. How it looks, how it smells, the smoothness on the tongue. And this is how we're brought in. And now he turns his attention elsewhere. But before we do, I want to say something I said last week when we reiterate. There is temporary pleasure in sin. The Bible says there is. There is pleasure for a season. There is temporary pleasure in alcohol, else millions of people would not be so addicted to it. He admits that. He knows that. But his point is, where it ends is painful. Verse 32, in the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. The antecedent of the pronoun it there is alcohol. Alcohol bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Now, a snake's movements and shape and colorations and striations are pretty cool to look at from behind a glass. I like to go to the snake house at the zoo in Fort Worth, but I'd like those snakes to be on the other side of the glass because I know many of them are deadly. They have venom. That's what he's describing here in verse 32. Venom affects the nervous system. And when you have alcohol, that venom in your system permanently, the eyes see strange things. You have hallucinations. He may be speaking here of withdrawals. Your mind will say perverse things. And I'm not going to give you any illustrations of that. <laughs> but every adult in this room has been around a drunk person and you know how they talk. Perverse. You stagger and sway like a ship on an angry sea. You get nausea. You get sick. You throw up. And then you fall asleep. And then when you wake up, you feel like you've been beaten with a stick. You have a hangover. He says there that someone beat me, but I, I don't know who. You have no memory of it. And, and here's the most amazing part about alcohol addiction. You go through all those things, hallucinations, perverse actions, embarrassing behavior. You get nauseous, sick, you throw up, you wake up with a hangover. And your first thought if you're addicted is this. When will I awake so that I can have another drink? And every one of us know people in our lives that live their lives every day just like that. Solomon doesn't want his son to end up like that. Now you say, well, well Solomon's just using scare tactics on his sons. You better believe it. I use it on mine all the time. I advise you to. There are certain things and behaviors 
that I want my children to have a healthy fear of. Let me just list a few of them. I have a teenager who's going to be driving in a couple of years. And though she's a good daughter and a good driver so far, I want her to have a healthy fear of what an automobile can do. It can hurt you. can kill you. can harm other people if you don't use wisdom. I want my children, as I said last week, to have a healthy fear of sexual temptation, knowing they can make decisions in their teen years that will follow them the rest of their lives. I want my children to have a healthy fear of a rattlesnake. We're going hiking out west at a national park in a month or so, and I want them, if they hear a rattlesnake, to get far away. If I have to scare them to do that, so be it. So what I'm saying is I want my four children to have a healthy fear of what alcohol can do in their lives. And it's not just my children. I share their concern for every one of you. So let me uh, conclude our message today with a plea. It is a plea for wisdom in the area of alcohol. This is the pastor's plea, if you want to call it that. This is the 4th of July. And we're going to have a picnic, as I said, in a few minutes. We're not going to serve alcohol. We think to do so would be unwise for a number of reasons. For one, we know that uh, many, if not most people in our culture, use the 4th of July like they use every other holiday and every other day that ends in Y as an occasion to drink and often to excess. And so we're to be different than the world. I think what I mean by that is, as Christians, our joy, our ability to function in the world ought not to be a function of how many drinks we consume. We have the joy of the Lord. That's why Paul said, be not drunk with wine, but what? Be full of the Spirit. Our reputation in the community is that we are controlled by the Spirit of God, not by alcohol. Now, let me address some frequently asked questions that I know some of you are thinking right now. Number one, pastor, is it always a sin to have a drink? No. Not everything the Bible has to say about alcohol is negative. Apostle Paul told his protege Timothy, who was having digestive problems, to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. I advise you not to make that your life's verse. It will be out of context. The context is that Timothy was having health problems. He lived in a culture whose drinking water was polluted, like in many third world countries today. I would suspect part of his digestive problems came from drinking that water. So Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Jesus performed his first public miracle by turning water into wine at a wedding. You say, wait a second, that wasn't wine, that was grape juice. That might be what you were told as a kid. Um, so that leads to our second question, which is, did the wine they drank in the Bible contain alcohol? Of course, yes. I'm not the smartest guy, you know that, but even as a young boy, I figured out that was true. Else, why would there need to be a prohibition in the Bible against drunkenness if they were only drinking grape juice? Of course it was alcoholic, and I'm sure a less potent variety than we find on our shelves today. 
So, because the Bible does not forbid explicitly all consumption of alcohol, your pastors believe that it is a matter of individual freedom. Therefore, those who choose to have an occasional glass of wine should not be judged as unspiritual or unbelievers. But on the other hand, those who choose to abstain should not be viewed as less mature Christians either. So when we rewrote our church covenant three years ago, we have an article called Sobriety. By the way, I let the cat out of the bag Wednesday night. We're studying through Proverbs on Wednesday night here too. And I said we're actually just going through our church covenant. And the book of Proverbs is making commentary on, on that covenant and, and vice versa. And so there's an article in our church covenant called Sobriety. This is what it says. By being sober-minded and avoiding drunkenness, as well as the abuse of drugs, illegal and prescription, we reflect God's wisdom and holy character. We're talking about wisdom today. It is wise to use alcohol sparingly if you're going to use it, and of course, um, wisely. Now, with that said, don't leave here saying the pastor said, drink a glass of wine, you're in sin. Didn't say that. But having said that, I want to use my remaining time to make an argument for abstinence. An argument for abstinence. This is my plea to you. Let me say clearly, and I do want you to quote me on this, that for me and my house, we have chosen to abstain totally from alcohol. And I want to explain why. There are a number of reasons. It goes back over 40 years with me. As a young boy, I made the choice to abstain from alcohol after reading the book of Genesis. Hadn't been reading long, so I wasn't reading fast, I know that, but I remember coming to the story of Joseph. And I was just enamored with the story of Joseph. Every time he had a setback, the Lord blessed him, and he kept getting raised to higher and higher places. And um, I determined I want to be a man like Joseph, that the Lord could bless. And in my young, immature, naive mind, I, I felt like drinking alcohol would not contribute to being put in a position to bless. And so I decided as a boy never to drink alcohol. Uh, now that I'm a husband and father, I, I lead my family to abstain. Um, I then and today want to be useful to the Lord. And I don't believe that drinking can assist that goal in any meaningful way. Another reason I abstain is that uh, I observed young, drunk people when I was younger and their behavior, and I didn't like it. Um, I graduated high school in a little farming community in northeast Arkansas and grew up my teenage years there. Very isolated place, not a lot to do, and so uh, most of my friends and classmates and peers spent their weekends inebriated. And many of them made decisions in that state of inebriation that still haunt them today. And uh, I was determined not to make those same mistakes. Probably the best reason I, I don't drink is that it was never in my home growing up, and so I never missed it. But as I have gotten older, the reasons to abstain have changed. As I have read more of the Bible, not just the book of Genesis, and, uh, I find there are men and women in the Bible who at one time the Lord used greatly that ruined their reputations through it. In the book of Genesis, we find Noah who was used by God to preserve the human race through the flood. The first thing that he did, having been rescued by God, is 
He grew a vineyard and got drunk and embarrassed his entire family. I think of Lot, Abraham's nephew, who was attracted to the bright lights in the big city. And when God rescued them from the wrath that came, the fire and the brimstone, his response was to get drunk. And one of the sorriest episodes ever recorded in the Bible has to do with that episode. It's not just Christians, it's, it's people who don't claim to be Christians and the effect it had on their life and their decision making. In the New Testament, King Herod cut off John the Baptist's head because of a foolish promise he made in a drunken stupor. And then, as a pastor these 25 years, had a lot of experience with people who were addicted to alcohol, some of my friends. Early on in my ministry, in my 20s, I had the opportunity to do prison ministry in some very difficult places, and I discovered there, talking to these men and doing further research, that a very high percentage of the violent crimes in our country are committed by people who are drunk or who are addicted to alcohol. I bear young people who died because of their addiction or accidents which contributed I saw families and continue to see families in our community torn apart by alcohol. When I was a public school teacher, I saw children who were abused by their addicted parents. In my late 20s, I spent a summer in Russia as a missionary, and I saw the authorities every morning pulling dead bodies out of the Muscova River. It was the hottest summer they ever had in Moscow, and the drunks would go down to the river in the evening to cool off and fall in and be too drunk to swim out. 200 bodies pulled out of the river in one summer. And most recently, I sat in a courtroom with one of our church members as he was sentenced to 40 years in prison for vehicular homicide after having a few drinks. So you'll have to forgive me if I get a little emotional when I tell you that if my four children ever decide to drink alcohol, and they may, that will be their decision. They will not learn it from their mother and me. They won't find it in our house, in our cabinets. And let me make one more plea. I told you, I, this is my personal conviction. There's no prohibition in the Bible that I'm pointing to. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Rob's going to put it on the screen. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this verse and variations of it during his ministry here. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are permitted, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted, but not all things build people up. A theme of Paul's ministry is that we only should say things and do things that have the effect of edification, helping ourselves, our families, and our fellow church members, on that road of sanctification, growing more and more in the image of Christ. And he says, look, God hasn't given us a rule book. He hasn't prescribed exactly what to drink and what to eat and where to go. That's not what the Bible is. He says we have great Christian freedom. Paul was a great advocate of Christian freedom. But he also says don't use your freedom as a license. Don't use it as a way to, to run over people and rub roughshod sinfully through your life. This is the 4th of July after way, the day that we separate, celebrate freedom. And one of the things we need to remind one another on the 4th of July 
and every other day on the calendar is that with great freedom comes great responsibility. It is a matter of Christian freedom because uh, the Bible teaches that just because something is lawful, that it's not in the category of sinfulness, doesn't mean you should do it. Doesn't mean that it's wise. And there are some very good reasons why I think abstinence is the best policy. Number one is the risk. That's kind of how Solomon ended up talking to his son about sex. He says, son, I know it's alluring. I know it's attractive. But I want you to know the risk is not worth the reward. I know some of you make your stock decisions that way. You weigh the risk and the potential reward. And I want you to know that in the area of sexual temptation, it's clear cut. The pain and the suffering that comes is not worth it. That's where we ended last week. And I have a personal conviction as it relates to drinking alcohol that the temporary pleasure that I assume comes through the drinking of alcohol is, for me, not worth the risk that would have to be run. The risk, number one, of causing another person to stumble. Can you imagine when this service is over, if I went out to the picnic with a 16-ounce beer in my hand? Do you think that might cause a little one to stumble? And to question everything they've ever heard their pastor tell them? What if I went down to uh, a gathering at City Hall? There are 15,000 people at the fireworks show, I'm told, last night. Can you imagine if one of our deacons stumbled through there? What damage that could be to our reputation in the community, to our ability to evangelize this community with the gospel? It's not worth the risk. And, and then there's just simply the risk of addiction. I know people, I have friends. We can have a glass of wine or a beer and don't have a second one. They can take it or leave it. I also have friends who, when they took their first taste of wine, were an addict for life. People in our church. So for me, it's not worth the risk. I might be one of those people, for all I know. And so I say all that to say this. Will you consider, church family, will you prayerfully consider, as you're thinking about what your position is going to be on wisdom and alcohol, will you prayerfully consider abstinence as an option? Yes, it's a matter of freedom. Our church covenant reflects that. The Bible says that. But I can't find a prescription anywhere in the Bible that says we must drink. And so for that reason, let us prayerfully consider abstinence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. It's a difficult word. We can sense the tension in the room. Differences of opinion. Um, Lord, I don't want to give my opinion as, as gospel fact. We, we saw that Solomon as a loving father from a lifetime of experience fears that his sons are going to take this path that will lead to pain. He wants them to avoid it. And the only ironclad way I know of not being an alcoholic is not taking the first drink. So Lord, I pray that many of our young people will consider that and choose abstinence so that they may be dedicated to the Lord. 
For those that, that don't have that conviction, Lord, help us not to look down on them as lesser than. They're not. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ who are exercising their, their Christian freedom. Father, for those who choose abstinence, I pray that, on the other hand, we wouldn't look down on them as less mature Christians. Father, I pray that, uh, that we'd all be wise. Lord, that we'd never do anything that would uh, lessen our ability to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, there may be some in this room right now who are addicted and, and no one knows it, not even their own wife or husband. Father, I pray you'd give them victory. Father, I pray they would submit in every area to, to the Lordship of Jesus in this area. Pray that we'd be merciful, kind, and, and loving. Thank you that your grace is greater than our sins. Father, I pray you'd protect our young people as they go out this week. Not only from the danger of personal consumption, but for those on the road who've been unwise. Put a hedge of protection around the fathers. They traveled to Arkansas and back. Father, I pray as we go home, we think about these things deeply and prayerfully and seek your will and nothing else. I pray that we'd reach a place of unity as a church family on this issue and all others. And I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.